Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. There are the kind of people who lead by example, the kind of courageous people who shine a light into the darkness and are not afraid to walk into it themselves at their own peril in order to give a voice to the voiceless. I am extremely humbled to call such an incredibly compassionate and fearless person a dear friend. My guest today is Holly McKay. Holly is a writer, human rights and foreign policy expert and war crimes investigator. She worked for Fox News Digital for over 14 years covering warfare, terrorism, and crimes against humanity, and has interviewed survivors of sex slavery, torture, and forced child jihadist training. She has worked on the front lines of several major war zones and covered humanitarian and diplomatic crises in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Africa, Latin America, just to mention a few. Holly is also the author of Only Cry for the Living, memos from inside the ISIS battlefield. It is her personal and raw account of her on-the-grounds experiences chronicling the rise of ISIS in Iraq. It is a book about the chilling legacy of one of the most brutal terror organizations in the world. And it is also a story about the resilience and beauty of the human spirit. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Welcome to the Superhumanized podcast, Holly. It's so good to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. You know, we've known each other for many, many years now, and it's been amazing to see what you've been doing and the life you've created for yourself. And what I really want to highlight is that you're someone who has an incredibly unusual story. You're born and raised in Australia, and you moved to the U.S. to work for a major news corporation, Fox News, when you're only 20 years old, and you subsequently became one of the most successful and widely read Hollywood columnists. You interviewed A-list celebrities. You attended and reported from the most glamorous events in the world, Oscars, the Golden Globes. It's a life that many would consider an absolute dream. And then you decided to leave all this behind. You went from red carpets to war zones, from interviewing Johnny Depp to interviewing jihadis. Please share some of your backstory with us and tell us about what prompted this massive career change. Right. So, I mean, I always loved to write. That was one thing as a child. My mother, who was a kindergarten teacher, and she was just always very allowing me to kind of write. And it really was my first love. Uh, and then as I grew up, I, I became very vested as a ballet dancer and went to way to boarding school, sort of a fame type school and really studied dance there. And 
I thought that that in something in that realm, the the arts realm was what I was going to go into, whether it was choreography or whether it was a ballet company. I just, that was my love. And uh, when I was 18, I broke my ankle. So that set me back a little bit in the plans I'd sort of had in that. So I went back to university and was was kind of all over the place. And my, my head was never there. I was never that focused. Um, and so I had an opportunity to kind of go to New York to finish my degree. And this sounds so much better. So I went, I went to New York to do that last semester. I was 20 years old and I just heard about these internships and I, I, I didn't know what that was. We didn't have that in Australia. I was always working full time. I'd gone back into a lot of dance jobs and everybody was talking about it. And I thought, I want to do this too. What is this? Um, and I went to all these different news websites and I just kind of went to, to Fox News and I didn't really know much about it. We had Foxtel in Australia. It's obviously part of that Murdoch empire. And they called me and I had a lot of web coding experience at that point. And that was in 2006. So the whole digital news bureau thing, you know, it wasn't really a thing then. It was still, everything was very television focused. And they said, well, would you like to go and work for the dot-com? You seem like you like websites and you have experience writing. And I thought, sure, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever. And I really, I just, I really loved it. I fell in love with this idea of a newsroom. I fell in love with this idea of, of news being able to go up so fast and you're in New York and it's this chaotic place. And it, it was just this really incredible experience for me and they offered to sponsor me at the end of my my job and I thought this is amazing you know I, I just turned 21 at that point and now I don't have to to go home but they were building up the LA Bureau a lot so and obviously being in Los Angeles uh, they were looking at entertainment and so I was very keen to do that again coming from that arts background I thought you know this will be great I'll get a chance to really you know, look at arts and books and, and movies and, you know, perhaps a little naive um, when I got there. But it was, you know, it was incredible training ground because I was, it was baptism by fire. I was really thrown to the wolves. I didn't know anyone and yet I was expected to break all these stories. And I really, I remember that first six months that I had in, in LA and getting an apartment in Santa Monica and just, I would go to every every event every party every you know I'd meet every publicist or, or agent or whoever that I could and just it was this just building a Rolodex and it was just it was really incredible and I really learned I think so many things from that because I was also thrown a lot of into investigative stories or court stories and I remember you know, Britney Spears was was going through conservatorship and divorces, and we would be sitting with Britney in a court in a courtroom, or I'd be in Compton in the Suge Knight trial, or oh, and then I would be in a red carpet interviewing, you know, so many different types of people, and there was you know there was a lot of the vacuousness that comes from it, and then there was a lot of these really cool, you know, experiences of being able to sit down with really creative people that. I think because I was so young, I, I maybe at the time didn't really realize how special it was, uh, you know, going to to Steven Soderbergh's house and, and sitting there for an hour or two or to Michael Bay's or whoever it was. And I I never maybe appreciated that how cool it was to be able to just kind of sit there and pick their brain about, about so many things. But it taught me a lot and it really taught me to hustle. And I think the biggest thing that working in in that entertainment and in so many different 
realms of it really was to, I don't know if I can swear on a podcast, but to really smell, (laughs) to really detect bullshit. So, (laughs) because there's so much of it. And so it really gives you this incredible uh, sixth sense sort of thing as a, as a journalist, which is so invaluable and became so invaluable to me working overseas was to be able to know when somebody's playing you, when somebody's not being authentic, you can listen to people going down a red carpet and you can, if you can hear them repeating the same answer to every person, I'm like, this isn't very authentic. This is a script. And so I always kind of tried to, to play into that uh, a little bit. And it really taught me and also taught me pushback because in a very similar way to, I guess, politics, Hollywood is sort of controlled by this, this sort of mafia of publicists and agents and managers and studios and all these layers of people that very much try to control the narrative. And most people working in there don't want to piss off any of these people that which will eliminate their access. So, so much gets so filtered that you're never really getting the truth. And that was to me something that I never gelled with. I always felt very much like an outsider because I didn't, I didn't have an interest in being your friend. I was never someone who was starstruck. You, you know, it was just I, I wanted to tell what the real story was. And so for me, that was always being able to kind of push through those layers or at least understand how the game worked a little bit so that I could use those skills later on because I knew it was just a launching pad for me. To be able to not put up with it. Yeah. I love what you're just saying, that Hollywood was, in a sense, a training ground for you going into all these other really extremely dangerous situations later on in your career. That's actually, it's kind of hilarious in one sense, but it actually also really resonates because, yes, I mean, where else but in Hollywood, where there's so many people putting up fronts, uh, what, where could be a better place to learn actually whether somebody's being real with your situation is, is safe or not? So you were in the midst of having this tremendous career. I mean, we were together off and we went to events together off and, and had a ball. And I could also see the way people treated you with reverence. Your, your column was very, very widely read. So you were at the pinnacle of a career in the entertainment industry that many people would literally chop their fingers off for. And then there came a time when you went through a really deep, soul search and I I remember we spent many evenings talking about and and it just didn't it didn't fulfill you anymore it's like you had reached everything you could and then you took you went in a direction that no one not even your close friends would have guessed and you decided to go to war zones and investigate what's happening there and I also think it's really important to say here that when you decided you you wanted to make that change, you did everything on your own dime. You literally went on vacation to Baghdad and paid for your own trip, or you took a holiday to go to Afghanistan. You had no network, you had no resources, you had no support from the network that you're actually working with when you built this new life. And that is absolutely remarkable. I have such huge respect for this. But so what I want to know from you, uh, what I would like for you to share with the audience is, so what was there a pivotal moment when you realized this is what you wanted to do? What was it? And then tell us about 
how you actually went about creating this against really great odds. Because obviously, Fox at the time did not want you to stop doing what you're doing because you were really good and really successful. <laughs> I think it was definitely a long time coming. I always felt, I think, and again, it probably worked to my advantage to make me good at my job when I was in that industry because I always felt like an outsider looking in. And I never felt that I was sort of really belonged or um, that I was one of those people. And I felt the whole thing to be kind of exhausting. So I always was, but I was always very intrigued by the human experience and, and just different people and different walks of life. And um, that it always just, it always really compelled me. And I, I studied a lot sort of in college with human rights issues and genocide issues. And I thought that, you know, that if I hadn't probably got offered the job um, in New York, then I would have wanted to go into perhaps human rights law or something like that. So it was always a, a passion, something I read a lot about. It just wasn't my invested career. And then, yeah, I just, I think I just reached a point and I'd, I'd been traveling and, and uh, speaking to a lot of different people. I was involved with different charities and, and I just, I just reached a point and I literally could not do it anymore. I could not wake up anymore. And I think be proud of what I was doing. And I think that's really what it was. It was, I wasn't proud of who I was and I wasn't proud of my contribution to, to journalism or to the, to the world. And I thought it wasn't that I thought I was a bad person. It wasn't that I thought I was doing anything harmful. I just felt I wasn't really being the person that I could have been. And it just it literally one day I, I could not get out of bed. I remember just looking at myself in the mirror and just, just feeling sick to my stomach and just thinking, I cannot leave the house today. Like this is, and I just, I, I was done. I was done. And I took a long time off and I really had to recharge my brain and, and try to center myself and try to work through a whole bunch of things. I think I was really burned out, um, but I really needed to make that shift and, so I did. I took a I took a long uh, a long chunk of time off to really heal, just sort of mentally from a lot of things. And I spent a lot of time uh, volunteering at an orphanage in Tijuana. And I was just trying to to find. I think I was grappling for a sense of purpose, and I see that in Hollywood all the time. And I, it's why I think so many, and I do have a lot of compassion for for celebrities that have addictions and, and and other problems because unlike a lot of people who are very quick to dismiss it and say, well, they have money, they have this, they can get help. A lot of people can't. I'm like, that's the reason they don't is because people on the outside think that they have a perfect life and everything is perfect and they must be grateful for their life. But we don't know what's going on. And so when you are in that kind of, it can be a very vacuous industry, searching for meaning and a purpose and something beyond yourself. And I think that that was the point I reached. And I was just very fortunate in my case that I did have, uh, you know, that I had traveled and I had written about um, different war zones and the Arab Spring had started and then ISIS had just come in. I had been in, in uh, Israel and Gaza during that 2014 conflict. So I sort of built up this experience and I was very fortunate that I had um, a boss in New York who really just had seen the work that I'd done as a very young journalist and, and you know, a couple of bosses and really saw me as, regardless of what the topic was, that I knew how to investigate a situation. I knew how to navigate a situation. And they really believed in me. And then there was also a correspondent 
in the uh, LA Bureau, Dominic, who had worked as the Pakistan Bureau Chief and, and he'd really done some amazing things in his career. And, and unfortunately, he's, he's not with us anymore, but he really encouraged me too. He's like, just go. If you want to do it, you've just got to do it. There's no other way. And so having the blessing of somebody like him who was, who was so experienced that really just encouraged me and, and sort of nurtured that in me in, in a sort of a, an official mental way, it, it, it gave me the confidence. And I, I was very lucky that I, I think I'd proven myself enough that, you know, my bosses had, had said, well, she wants to do this. She knows how to be a journalist. Um, we should give her a chance. And I, I'm really grateful to them for, for that because, yeah, I mean, most, I think I was 26 or something at the time. So, yeah, I just kind of went. Superhumanize. You're talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's about being a, a journalist and that you were able to research and do stories. I think it's really, really important, though, to say that you didn't just choose some other type of journalism outside of, you know, reporting, writing about Hollywood. You became a war reporter and war correspondents are different from any other journalists. They go right into the eye of war, of a human storm to bear witness and report on the death of human suffering at great personal peril. So why did you want to become a war correspondent, a war reporter? I think what I was really drawn to was just sort of the intensity of that human experience. And, and I've always been a bit of an extremist, maybe perhaps, but this idea of, of really being able to see the best and the worst of, of, of that human experience right beside each other. And I think those dualities really, I, I was so curious about it. How does that work? You know, what, what, how does this function? And I just think also I was extremely curious about this idea of why this is still happening. I mean, it feels to me, you know, I, I talk about this a little bit in the introduction of the book, but growing up in Australia in a, you know, a small town, it's very idyllic. I had my grandfather and family members on both sides who had fought in the Second World War, and it just seemed like it was such an archaic concept to me. I couldn't understand how in a, in a modern day, with all the knowledge that we'd had, why these things, why violence was, was a resolution in any way, shape, or form to anything. And I think maybe that was naive, but I, just, I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I really I wanted to understand it. And I'm the sort of person who very much needs to be in a situation to really understand it. And I, I wanted to, to do the war stuff and not, not because I really had a great vested interest in sort of the military aspects. I think it's really important to have knowledge of, of that stuff. And it's really, you know, it's equally as important to tell those stories, but to me, it was, it was the human aspect of it. Um, and I think that, you know, even when I would go to front lines and spend time with you know, soldiers from different countries, and I was always more interested in, I would think the stories I wrote were always about, you know, who, the, who these soldiers were and, and their families and, and how long, you know, the sacrifices that I guess that they made more so than, you know, how much was incoming or outgoing or what the, you know, the what weapons were being used. That that was sort of less, that was a sideshow. To me, that wasn't really that interesting. And um, it has an audience to me. It just, I wasn't the person to write that story, but I was the person who wanted to be, 
a vessel, you know, in telling the more human side of the story. Yes. And that comes through so much in your book, Only Cry for the Living. And it's also uh, something that Jocko Willink, who wrote the foreword for your book, he picked up on exactly this mix of shining a light on the best and the worst of human nature and um, telling the stories of the people really telling the stories of the people, whether it's the displaced people, people who were displaced from war, or like you just mentioned, uh, uh, the soldiers who are actually fighting the wars. And something that's um, an aspect of, of your career, and also, of course, of your book that I want to talk about, is women in war. We, of course, uh, now have women in the military fighting wars. We also have women reporters who cover the stories of war on the ground. They are, however still rare. You know, you are a rare breed. This is something really exceptional you're doing there. Uh, what kind of obstacles um, do you feel you face as a woman who goes into these war zones? And also, are there advantages? I remember in your book, you speak about uh, the so-called third gender, when, when you are, especially in uh, pretty patriarchal societies where women have a very specific place. You know, in my experience, and I and I I've also heard this from several other female uh, war correspondents, but it's it's always been more of a, an advantage than a disadvantage. And in the third gender sort of refers to where a lot of the time the the men don't expect you to be like their women, but you're not a man, so you're sort of in the middle, and you can very much navigate both sides. I I always use the example. I remember being in in Kabul in Afghanistan, and and which is very extremely conservative. And in one room, the men were smoking their cigarettes and, you know, eating and, and all the women uh, were in another room, you know, having the tea and, and sort of laughing. And I remember just the whole night I was just going back and forth, back and forth. So I'd sit with the women and, and then I would, you know, move to the, to the other room and, and sort of sit with the guys. And, and it was just, it was very interesting to be able to kind of do that. And, and, and it was sort of fun, unique for them too, I think, but they definitely didn't see me as, as having to be um, like their own women. So in the most part, but having said that, there are still, there are still times when you go into situations where uh, a man won't look at you or a man won't shake your, shake your hand or, you know, that, so that definitely happens. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of situations um in where where men will see a Western woman and immediately think that they can, you know, they can grab her or touch her or something. So a couple of people have been punched in the face, but um, that's, that's rare. It's happened twice. Um, but so, you know, it does happen, but, you know, having said that, that can happen here, that can happen anywhere. But it was more than, I think this idea of, well, this Western woman who is she, she must be, you know, a lot different to our women. Um, so, there is that. But to me, it's always been an advantage. And also because when you are dealing with situations like very taboo subjects that I dealt with a lot, you know, covering ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and that was sexual violence in war and the Yazidi women who had had been kidnapped. And I've been doing a lot more in other ethnic minorities that were also kidnapped and, and have been subjected to that, which never got the attention because their communities are so closed. You've got the uh, Shia Shabak women and also the Iraqi Turkmen women. They were also kidnapped and many of them remain missing. And it's been so difficult for their community leaders to come out and talk about it because of the taboo nature of it. 
and a fear that that even if the girls were to escape their captivity and come home, that they would be banished to the house or honor killed or something because it's considered so shameful and it's you know it's been so heartbreaking. But the Yazidis were very different in the way that they so many of them came out to tell their stories and, and what had happened to them, which was just atrocious. And they were really shattering those taboos. So that's been such a big part of, of my life and, and in covering that ISIS journey. But I guess I was able to really sit with a lot of these women and talk to them. And they were comfortable enough to, to talk to me and, and tell me their stories. Whereas I, I don't think that, you know, a man obviously couldn't be sitting alone with a woman. And even so, I don't think that that they would feel so open to talk about those things uh, with the male colleague. And I, I really think, you know, that's cutting off 50% of the, the population that they don't have access to. And even if you're looking for information, I mean, the women, they know everything that's going on in that house. They know everything about every person in that neighborhood and who's good and who's bad. And they're just they're really uh, troves of information. And um, being able to kind of establish that rapport with them, I think, has been really beneficial to my work as opposed to being a detriment. So Excellent. for the most part, it's 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 a really great asset. Superhumanize. And also an asset to um, to yourself, in a sense, to move through those worlds, but also a huge asset to humanity, because what you just mentioned, um, these women who have been subjected to un imaginable suffering how else could they get their stories out if it were not for a woman like you uh, who goes there and who they can open up to who they can actually sit with and talk with and i think you're you're following a line of really great and amazing and courageous women i mean uh dorothy lawrence comes to mind uh woman who disguised as a British soldier in the First World War in order to report Claire Hollingworth, uh, who reported at the beginning of the Second World War, and then, of course, Martha Gellhorn. Um, and, I mean, uh, there's so many amazing and strong women, and um, Mary uh, Colvin, uh, and you keep carrying that flag and doing some really, really important work, and also very dangerous work. I mean, uh, let's be real. You're going into really dangerous situations and you often deal with really dangerous individuals like jihadis, like warlords or cartel members when you go into South America, for example. Um, how do you prepare for going into these situations and how, how do you keep yourself safe in a, in a situation that's completely fluid and could change at any moment? I mean, you can only plan so much. I think what a lot of people you know, don't see is the the weeks and months that often go into the logistical planning for a story. And I just, it's, it's a stressful part, but it's also a part that I, I love. And that is you really, you know, you're planning on how am I going to get into this country? I've got to get a visa to this country. I've got to get someone to pick me up here, someone here. What's the budget for this? What is, you know, who is going to be my driver? Who can be trusted? So there is a lot of logistical planning and I always have a great Rolodex of, of people that I know, uh, you know, former military or otherwise that I know that I can call on if there's a problem that will, that will help me. Um, but the approach that I've always taken, which has been different to a lot of uh, TV crews and other things is I like to go very much under the radar. So 
when I go into a place, I'm going not with teams of security, not with, you know, big cameras. I'm going in with just me and my iPhone and a backpack. And um, I'm going to dress like the locals. I'm going to blend in you know, to whatever degree that I can, not stand out. Uh, and that's the approach that I like to take is, is under the radar and as less attention on me as possible. And that's how I find that I get the best of the stories and can kind of navigate situations from A to B in the best way. I think it's a lot more difficult if you're going to go in with, uh, and you're going to be, bring a lot more attention to yourself. If you're going in with, uh, you know, a bunch of belly guys or a big cameraman or, you know, and, and it's going to be a lot hard to maybe get to the nuts and bolts of the story. And it's probably a big reason why I, I love to write. And, and but you know what you're just saying, you know, what you're just, what you're just saying about, you know, for you, and that's your unique and amazing perspective that it's going to be much more difficult to get the stories done. I, 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 it's really worthwhile mentioning from my side now that we've had a few occasions when we were on the phone. Uh, one time you were in some bombed out building where you're spending the nights. Another occasion you had just come back to safety. You were, I think you were at the front lines and Iraq and you just told me how yeah you were sleeping on a rooftop and then in the mornings you'd get woken up because ISIS was just there were snipers shooting and you were embedded with um with uh, uh military there <laughs> so what you're doing is far from the normal cush not not to to uh, talk in any way with disrespect about what other people are doing there we're also doing tremendous work but you choose the harder path because this is your way of getting the stories that you want. And I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, then, you know, and I will say, I'm sure there are dangerous situations. And sure you had, you know, that you, there's, there is the healthy amount of fear that everybody should have. And if you aren't feeling scared in certain situations, then it's time to go home. Um, so there's definitely that. But I, I also will say, and it's hard to wrap your head around unless you've done it, but it always I think it always seems more dangerous to the outside world than it is. I mean, there are definitely hairy situations, but 90% of the time you're kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen. And in that 10%, it might be very chaotic when something does happen. But the 90% of it is just, you know, it's, it's often a strangely calm kind of situation. So, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to depict, but I think there's a lot of it sort of gets hyped up a lot. Um, and, and, you know, reporters and things, you know, maybe they have to do that to a degree to sell a story. But I think so much of it, you know, and, and what I guess for me, what I take away with it is that there are people that I encounter, that I talk to, that I stay with, who are living through this all day, every day. And this is just their life. And they and if they can make it from A to B, then, then so can I. Um, but I do think it's healthy to have fear when, when it's warranted, but not to panic. It's never beneficial to ever panic in a situation. So you have to learn to take on that fear in some way and, you know, get to where you need to be to be safe. But panicking isn't, isn't going to serve anybody. And so that's, that's a skill I think that that maybe will separate war correspondents from people that want to be nowhere near a front line. So walk us through the specifics of this, though. How do you actually deal with it when you are actually in one of these 10% situations where everything happens at once, it's dangerous AF, uh, and the fear sets in? How do you deal with that 
Um, how do you make sure it doesn't turn into panic? I usually go very quiet and I become very calm and I become very methodical. And you do compartmentalize a situation to a degree where you really are, your, your brain is sort of tuned in to think this is surviving or not surviving. Yeah, everything I do, everything becomes incredibly clear. It's very, um, in my experience, it's just, it's very, it's almost a little out of body because you're really just thinking about one thing and that is I have to survive. Well, the, you know, and the people, as many people around me have to survive. And that's all that matters in that moment. There's nothing else that matters. Bills don't matter. Making flights don't matter. Food doesn't matter. It just, you, that's all that matters. And everything else doesn't matter anymore. And there's just a clarity that comes from that. And I think for me, that's always been being able to sort of take it in and be calm and go quiet and almost reserve that energy um, to get to where I need to be as opposed to expending that energy, you know, flapping my hands around and, and screaming and crying. That, that it's sort of this automatic conservation of energy, I would say. And what you just said, so for you, of course, these are situations you go into and then you basically come back home to the United States, which is your home now. And the people you meet there for them, it's their everyday life. And it's these mm -hmm. ordinary people who are thrust into extraordinary situations who you really focus on. I mean, in the, in the thousands of articles you've written in your book, um, the stories you tell are of these, these survivor, survivors. And there's a question in your book that you keep asking throughout the different memos, because your book is written in memos, um, in a memo type style. And the question is, uh, what is war? And there are many ways you answer it in the different vignettes of, in the different situations. And I wanna read just a few of those. What is war? War brings resiliency. War is running. It's not knowing what is on the other side. It is being unwelcome in your own home. It is being unwelcome away from your home. Sometimes war is walking too. One moment here and the next in some no man's land that could never be home. It is drifting from place to place, both in the mind and the body. War is walking for days in the pouring rain with only a paper bag or a dish rag to ward off the elements. War is being stuck in a car, bumper to bumper with hundreds of your fleeing neighbors. War is a drive that once took you two hours instead of 10. War is losing the joys, the dancing, and the family gatherings. War is losing the basics, a proper stove to cook with, and a sturdy wall to sit against while you ate. War is being a top-notch builder or a devoted farmer, and within a matter of minutes, having your life earnings wiped away by enemy hands. It is living in a place where you cannot find a job and having no alternative but to send your young children off to lay bricks where you will forever be haunted by the vision of their tiny backs bent over under the burning sun instead of in school. What is war? War does not rest until the dead are dead and the living are like the dead. What is war to you, Holly? What is the truth that you found in war? Always go back. War is is the best of humanity and is the worst of humanity, and it's there's no other situation in my experience where those dualities are just so pronounced, and they can be living literally side by side, or you see in one minute to the next. 
just the absolute extremes of who we are as human beings condensed into one situation um, with every level of gray in between, but you're really just seeing, you see, I mean, obviously when we think of war, we, we generally think of the violence and the, the death and the, the bloodshed and, and the horrific uh, physical things that happen, the horrific tra- trauma that, that emanates from that. But at the same time, you meet the most beautiful people and you meet the most authentic people because they're really just in this sort of very vulnerable state of telling a story. And you see the way that that people stand up for one another and neighbours take other neighbours in and and people look look after other people's children and people that have no money you know, are giving what are selling their television to give someone else money so that they can buy back uh, their sister or their mother who was stolen as a sex slave. And, and you just see this great sense of community and within within tribes, within ethnicities, within cities and communities. And it's this kind of, this great sense of survival and of coming together. And so a camaraderie really. And I think there's just these beautiful and pleasant moments and I really tried to put a little bit of that into the book too, because there are beautiful moments in war. There are just incredible people, you know, and just these raw moments of, of just undivided giving and help where they know there's nothing in return. There's no tip for tap. It's not a transactional relationship. It's people that are just really looking out for, for one another. And I think that that is just, it's such a beautiful thing. And it's, it's a, it's, I go back to that word, it's authentic. And so much of in our society, and, and we're very privileged to, to have the lives we have here in the US, but so much is sort of missing just that very core, authentic sensibility. And I, and I see that. And I, again, it's, 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 it's probably made me a fairly minimalist person in so many ways because it's pairing back all the layers and all the the beliefs that we have of ourselves and what we need to be and who we need to be and how much money we need to make and what we need to look like and all these things. And you're just with people who really want nothing from you. And I think that was also something that really drew me to, to war zones when I left, when I left sort of that Hollywood arena, it almost felt like for the first time I was with working with people who wanted nothing but for me to be safe. And that was just incredible because it was just so far removed from, you know, my past life where everything was transactional every, you know, and quite frankly, that's just a lot of life. But yeah, it was, it was such a, it was, it was such a powerful thing for me to just to be surrounded by these people you have immediate bonds with because you're in these harrowing situations and yeah, you bond with people so quickly because of that. Superhumanize. I remember throughout the years uh, that you went into different war zones, uh, you would always come back with a story of how touched you were that people would even put their own safety at risk just to make you were sure you were safe or share the little comfort that they had with you, just the depth of the humanity of it. And um to know that there's such beauty and humanity to be found mm-hmm. in such horrible situations is something that is very uplifting. Uh, do you have a specific moment that comes to your mind when you think of such a situation that you'd want to share with us? 
when I went to Syria and I, I, I crossed from, it was a logistical nightmare. Eventually I crossed from Iraq into Syria on this little boat across the Euphrates. I was by myself. I had a backpack in my body armor and that was about it. A friend is waving me off. My driver is waving me off in Iraq and like I'm crossing the boat to go to Syria. And it sort of teed up um, uh, uh, Maslum, his name was, and, and he was going to be my fixer and he was sort of going to pick me up and he'd organize a driver. And I just eventually I'd get there and was, I was very sort of a little bit ruffled. And you know, he'd driven, you know, 10 hours to pick me up and he brought his cousin to, to drive. And and he was just, you know, he was my age, but he's Syrian, Kurdish Syrian. He was just amazing. And he took me in uh, with his family and his wife and, you know, I'm sleeping on their floors and I just, he wanted nothing from me other than just to be this sort of kind, gentle, you know, wanted to make sure I had everything I had. And I was, I was a little strung at that point with a few things that were going on. And there was, you know, it was when Trump had kind of gone in and was um, blowing up these chemical weapons storage units. And so there was just a lot going on and, and there were things that were happening and I felt very alone and, it was just this immediate bond of having such a close friend and he and his wife and he had two young boys. And it was just this sort of sense. I just remember just being overwhelmed with, you know, why are these people taking care of me? You know, and I'd gone from living by myself in an apartment in LA and then in New York where a lot of my life was very alone and I was traveling alone and I was, I was, I was alone a lot. And suddenly I was surrounded by, by just these people that, it felt like an immediate family and they just, it was just, it was, it was very overwhelming. And I thought, you know, what, what do you get out of helping me? Really nothing. And yeah, I just, I was so just touched by them. And, and there was this awful sort of situation while I was there where his nephew, I'd gotten really sick. I'd gotten food poisoning. I was stupid and eaten fish at this restaurant that had come out of the Euphrates, which I recommend no one ever do because that's not clean water. I got my, you know, I was throwing up um, and they were just, they were taking care of me. And, you know, an awful situation had happened where his, his nephew um, had the, the canister had exploded when they were making tea and the, the seven-year-old boy was killed and the baby that she was holding was blinded. And it was, just, I was, I was such a wreck. And, and I felt that it was all my fault because I was the one that everybody had been tending to who was sick and everybody was trying to help me and make me tea and make me water and, you know, all these things. And I was just a wreck and just, you know, he, he was helping me through it. And this was his family. And he was, you know, this is the life. This was his fate. And I just, you know, it was just, it was such a difficult thing. And I, I still harbor so much guilt from that. But yeah, anyway, and, and the most beautiful part about it was um, Parishin, his wife was pregnant at the time. And he said to me before I left, if it's a girl, it'll be first one girl, I, I, I'm going to name her Holly. <laughs> and I just, I smiled and I saw, oh, that's lovely. You know, I, I'm very touched. And sure enough, she was born and, and a few months after I'd left and she was a girl and they named her Holly. And I just thought, you know, she was just this little angel that unfortunately I can't get to. And I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me, he says, you know what? And they're in a little, they're in a village called Kobani in, in Syria. And he said to me, you know what? He said, there are lots of Hollies in Kobani now. Like everybody's naming their daughter Holly, you know, so it's felt the same way with the naive. And I just... I was so touched by it because I thought, 
you know, what a lovely, you know, just the, the just what, how lovely that was to me and to how special that was. And it's sort of an example of these fast bonds and, and these long lasting bonds that you, you form with people. And I think that's really such a big part of what drew me to, to these places was I felt, yeah, I had this sort of sense of, of, of family and I, and I think because my own family is in Australia and, and, you know, I've always lived alone that I, that was something that was, I was really missing in my life. And, and I, I found it in the most far flung places. That's a beautiful and very moving story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Holly. I found reading your book, all, uh, there's, there's uh, so many places in your book where just the, the grace, the tenacity, the faith of the people that you talk with shines through. And this, of course, is a particularly beautiful moment and also a testimony to you and uh, your work and how you have been supporting these people by giving them a voice, by ensuring that their stories do not get forgotten. Um, I do want to read one more excerpt from your book that also underlines this in a different way, but it also does. Guli sat on a gaunt mattress in a white headscarf and clashing red and pink dress. Her glassy eyes lit up as I approached and she smiled, her ailing body slumped forward. She motioned for me to sit in the plastic purple chair, but I chose to sit beside her on the ground. Her daughter floated beside me. We wrapped Guli in blankets to cover her legs so her exposed skin would not be seen, so she could preserve her dignity in what felt like her dwindling days. Guli was disabled from what she referred to as a brain attack, a stroke, and Isis had thrown away her wheelchair when they kidnapped her. They had no money for a new one. Her life was now relegated to sitting helplessly in that one spot on the arid earth, waiting for someone, anyone, to come. For months, Isis had dragged this old woman around by her neck from torture place to torture place. She recalled how the cold came, and just as Murad, her husband, had said, there were no blankets or warm clothes. The frost had eaten away the feeling in one of Guli's hands, which she now clutched and shook in despair. She cried for something she could no longer feel. It was painful to watch. I reached for her good hand and entwined my fingers in hers. It was all I could do. I did not want to ask her questions of her ordeal. I could not ask her to relive the tribulation. I wanted only to be there somehow. Where was the world, the aid agencies, the do-gooders, the angels, and the God? These people couldn't even make it to an established camp. In my time abroad, stories like Murad's and Ghulis fell into infinite binders that would be tossed away to collect dust. There was no justice. This was genocide. We don't have anything, Ghuli sobbed, but we are thankful. As I eventually motioned to leave, she kissed my hand and wouldn't let it go. I will pray for you in my religion, the Yazidi, she whispered. God sees you. God sees everybody. Guli's power had been ripped from her, but never her pride. Her faith was tenacious. And that's an excerpt that really struck me in your book, Holly. Um, and what is it that we really need to understand about these displaced people that we call refugees? Refugees are usually have crossed an international border. So they're generally, there are more laws in, in place to protect them. So the irony of it, really was that, you know, the Syrian refugees that had crossed into Iraq during the uprising in Syria were often, you know, 
treated a lot better and had a lot more access to resources than the displaced Iraqi people, which is the irony of it, because there are no international laws that are protecting uh, displaced people because that is supposed to be at the hand of the government. And often, too often, it's the government that is persecuting the people and it's the reason they're displaced in the first place. Um, but in this case, so, you know, you had a mix of a lot of Syrians that were there, but also a lot of the Iraqis who, and they were the displaced and they really didn't have the same access to, uh, you know, the UN refugee agency or, or any of these other humanitarian aid groups who would sort of come in. But it's very murky when you're dealing with not violating a country's sovereign laws. So the displaced people often really, you know, so much of us, and, and what people don't realize is, only 20% of those displaced people will ever make it to a camp. So, you know, and these camps are, are pretty darn nightmarish. I mean, yeah, you might have a prefabricated home or a tent and someone might bring you some occasional food or you have a stipend or whatever and you, you do have a roof over your head and a latrine. And that's, you know, luxurious living really because 80% will be living, you know, they'll be squatting in an abandoned half-finished building or they'll be living in, you know, in the case of Murad and, and Bully. They were just in a in some sort of random house. Literally, it was just in the middle of, of nowhere. There was nothing around. There was no town. There was it was just um, this sort of hut, this old concrete hut that they were just sort of living in. And they picked up some sheets of someone had brought them, or you know, and and there was just nothing. There was no resources. They they didn't get a stipend. They weren't given access to medical facilities. Nobody was sort of coming to check on them. And to me, that was just, and, and often in a displacement situation, it's because people can't leave to go to a, a perhaps a more safe country nearby. So therefore, the situation is a lot more dangerous for them to be there. And in this particular case, too, aid organizations won't even go to the most dangerous places because they want to protect their, well, their workers and they can't get the insurance or whatever needs for that. So the UN and, and all these places are not in the most dangerous places, you know, they're they're rolling around, you know, doing a lot of great work, a lot of them, but they're also rolling around getting danger paid at pretty safe refugee camp. And that always frustrated me because I would see that great people doing great work and it's not that their fault that they weren't permitted to to go any further, but I would, you know, go to Sinjar Mountain where these Yazidis are just living in, in tatters on a mountain. And I remember the first time being there and just thinking, how is it that nobody is here? Like, what is going on? And, yeah, they said it's just it's considered too dangerous for um, a lot of these, these big organisations to, to send people mm-hmm. to help them. So the worst off, you will never see. You will never see their stories. You will never see, you know, photos. You, you just won't hear about them because a few journalists will go there if they can. But officials or, yeah, the big organisations, state agencies and things, they, they just won't go there. And they're the most vulnerable and they're not receiving any kind of help or, or attention. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you think a situation is really bad in one place, then, you know, it's probably a good chance that it's uh, going to be 20 or 30 times worse if you go 30 kilometres up the road to, to somewhere where there really is a lot of, of, uh, of fighting. Superhumanize. So that's a, a, a really critical thing to understand for me too. For example, I was uh, not aware of what you just described 
that there's actually places that the aid agencies just won't go for reasons like insurance and so forth. In the epilogue of your book, you write, the resilience of the human spirit is as real as it is beautiful. In the words of the small Iraqi child who played around dead bodies pulled up from the sewerage deaths as if it was the most ordinary thing in the world, only the living can hurt you. Only the living can hurt you. But if I may ad lib, only the living can help you too. This really got me thinking, Holly, uh, for compassionate people sitting at home, you know, you, you hear, you read, you see all these news. We're so privileged. We sit here in our safe homes. Which parts of our daily lives and choices have an effect on this that we may not be aware of? And how can we change it? And also, what could we do as an individual with regards to the tremendous suffering that goes on? First of all, I think it's just very important for, for us to be educated. And I know um, news is a business and you know, it's usually the world stories that are not a uh, priority for news bureaus, especially now when there's cost cuts. And, and so much of the past four years was very much just very heavy handed spent in, in sort of DC terms and in politics and in sort of analyzing every tweet that the former president made. And it's, you know, it was unfortunate to me that so much got got squashed with that. And and it's always it's it's been every foreign correspondent's frustration. It's not new, you know. For me, I'd get so frustrated. I'd be working in in these places, and and I you know stories would just be buried. And I was like, where is this? And and on the front of of the papers and in in magazines or whatever it was like Kim Kardashian breaking the internet or something. You know, it's just. Ugh. But I know from colleagues and things like back in in the 90s during the Bosnian War, I was like, you know, Princess Diana did something and that would get all the attention. So it's just it's different uh, incarnations of the same thing. But I just think it's really important for people to show a vested interest in, you know, in what is happening in the world, because it doesn't it does affect you. It does affect the policies we we make. It does affect where your tax dollars are spent whether the U.S. is going to go here or it's going to go there or not at all, or whether it's going to meet an influx of refugees, you know, you are going to be affected. Nobody can live in a bubble. Uh, I definitely think that there just needs to be, and it starts with showing an interest. When you read an article about, you know, the suffering in, in whether it's, you know, for the, the Uyghurs in China or, or something you know, in Ethiopia, there's some horrific things happening, or Myanmar. When you read an article, that click matters because that click will add to a bottom line of a news organization. If nobody's clicking on it, you know, they're going to devote less resources to it. And that's a huge uh, disservice to those people because the media really is one of the very few ways that they can, they can share and communicate what's happening and that we can understand it. So first of all, read, click, you know, subscribe to, to, to different outlets and things where you can get that, that information. And then, you know, Second of all, I mean, if you can give, give. I work with a couple of really great different organizations. I'm on the board of Emergency, which is an Italian foundation that operates war hospitals all around the world. And they do some really incredible work and some really life-saving work and in so many, you know, far-flung places and really save lives. I also work a lot with the Burn Relief Foundation in the U.S., which brings in Syrian uh, burn victims and and they get treated at Trinas in in Texas and and these these children are just you know they've literally had their faces burned off and often have no family members that are surviving and they're just some of them some of them are nine months old and it's 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 horrific 
I always, I'm a big believer in trying to help causes where you can kind of really see that individual human being or, you know, I, I sponsor children as well with Children International. And I think when you can have that relationship where you can see an individual and create a bond with them, you know, to me, that's, you know, what I, I value as opposed to giving my money often away to a lot of the bigger places that have huge overheads and that you don't really know exactly where your money is going or who it's helping. It's nice to be able to have a little bit more of an intimate feedback in that sense. So, you know, that's a way to help. I think if you can give money, it's usually more beneficial than trying to collect sweaters or, you know, things like that can become a lot more complicated, especially uh, overseas. So I do think money is the best way. So, you know, they're, they're the two main things I would say, read, educate, and be involved in it and um yeah talk to your friends about it you know just just be a global citizen in that sense and then if you can give a little bit back every little bit counts yes it's a great call to action be a global citizen because there is no separation what happens on one end of the world will come to our parts in one way or the other and if we believe differently we're just naive putting our heads in the sand won't make it go away. And even if you don't care, even if you don't have the compassion, pragmatically, you should really pay attention and do what you can. I'm with you 100% there, Holly. Um, you have so much going on now as we're talking. I know you're going to uh, narrate your book. It's going to be available as an audiobook. You're going to uh, see Jocko Willink and actually record it at his studio next week. Um, at the time when this podcast is out, your book will be out and everybody can get it. But you're also um, really doing some interesting things with regard to future endeavors. And one thing that really interests me and I find very exciting is McKay Global. Tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of focusing on a lot of my independent projects and looking at, at bigger pictures of how I can, I guess, propel difference in, in a different way. Um, and so something I would like to do with McKay Global that I'm working on at the moment is sort of really establishing Uh, reaching different, uh, different, you know, government, non-government entities, as well as in Fortune 500 companies, hedge funds, anyone really that's doing uh, projects overseas and that really wants to understand the lay of the land in a very in-depth way. And I think, you know, for me, not only for myself, but with my network of, of locals and people that I have on the ground that can help in putting together really just a very detailed understanding of the dynamics, who the players are, uh, the problems to, to kind of look at, to be aware of what's great, what's not, uh, any problems to do with you know, human rights issues, any problems, you know, potential government unrest, civil unrest, climate change, all the different uh, components that really needed to be, to be brought to light before uh, a company or a person or an entity kind of goes whole hog into a project. Because I think, I think that's really key to avoiding a situation before it arises. And I think so many people are so vested in, in crisis communications and things that there is a way to prevent uh, the project, prevent a lot of these problems from arising before you go there. And it's, you know, in, in my situation, it'd be a great opportunity to, to meet, for people here to meet and work with locals. And that's a big thing that I, I want to bring to the table is being able to, to give the people that I know who I trust and I love and I, who've protected me, you know, a chance to, to work with more Americans and expand their own horizons in that process. And also uh, corporate social responsibility, I think, is a really big thing 
being able to understand if you're going into different places, how can you support that community? What schools require help? What hospitals can you help? Um, you know, what are the what are the big issues that are impacting that that you're able to make a difference in? And I think that's uh, something I'd really love to be able to work with and navigate. You know, helping people navigate some of those sort of tough situations culturally, financially. Um, so that's sort of a project I'd like to go into. And then, of course, you know, with all my writing, uh, I'm still doing a lot of writing. I've got you know, my own books kind of planned out. I'm doing uh, some co-writing projects as well uh, and then some sort of essays and, and freelance magazine stuff here and there. So it's kind of a big um, a big uh, mush pit of, of things in, in that space and the things that I love. And I'm, I'm finally sort of, I think for the first time in my life, being able to kind of carve my own way of doing it uh, in a way that I hope enhances the conversation and still does the things that I love and, and maybe drives it forward a little bit. I think, you know, as a journalist, it's it can be frustrating because you, you pull so much into telling a story and then if nothing changes. And unfortunately, we've seen that in Syria. We've seen it in so many countries where, you know, you do, you risk your life or to tell something and, and the policy doesn't change or nothing is acted upon. It can be very, can be very frustrating. And I had to really work to release the, the hubris on my shoulders in the sense that I had to recognize that wasn't my job. It wasn't my job to change anything. It wasn't my job to convince X, Y, and Z that they had to go and do something. My job was purely to to be that vessel and to communicate that story. And, and I had to release myself from the guilt that I, I felt that, you know, when, when that didn't have the effect I wanted it to have. But in this way, I still want to be able to tell those stories, but hopefully maybe drive the, uh, the bigger picture forward in, in a different way. And I know you will. These are exciting times for you. I know we will hear a lot about you uh, um, and uh, the, the least not being, your book, uh, which I highly, highly recommend for everyone who wants to get a more in-depth insight about what's actually been going on in the wars that have been fought and not just the wars, but how does it affect people and to get an idea of the best and worst in us of what humanity has to offer. There's a question I ask every guest, Holly, and that's about the practices that you have that most profoundly in a positive way affected your life, mentally, physically, or spiritually? Well, definitely ballet is still a really big part of my life. Um, and it will always be a big part of my life. And I, you know, again, I'm, you know, it's that duality of something that's extremely graceful and, and but, but very athletic at the same time. And then, you know, going to that into war zones. But, uh, you know, funnily enough, I'll always say ballet taught me everything that I know. And it taught me to understand, to listen to my body, to listen to my intuition, to uh, express myself in a way that wasn't always vocal, um, to create, to, it taught me about the world, you know, as, in a sheltered little Australian upbringing, it really taught me about music and, and history and arts and just all these incredible things that I, I learned about through that trajectory. So it's still a big part of my life. I, I'll still put on my bark and, you know, float around in my, my point shoes when I can. And, and stretching is a really big part of that. I try to maintain as much flexibility and as I, I can do in that. And I really want people to understand how great it is for injury prevention 
Um, a lot of the times we don't have time to go to these, you know, long yoga classes as lovely as that would be. But, you know, with a 20 to 30 minute stretch, um, you can really get get into those muscles and release a lot of the tension. And, you know, that's something else I'd love to go into at some point too, is just being able to kind of pass a little bit more of my knowledge onto people with that. But um, yeah, I just think, you know, those things and music really music still plays such a big part of my life and, and it's a real mood setter for me. And, and I, you know, it helps me to, to balance and hear lyrics and, and so many different things. So yeah between between those and it still sort of keeps me keeps me very artsy if I can it's excellent thank you for sharing that Holly and that's one thing I just absolutely love about you too you know your uh, background in ballet from ballerina to badass Holly you're a true leader thank you for all the good work you do for this world and for raising your voice for those who don't have one who can't do so themselves I'm so proud and humbled to call you friend and thank you for being my guest today. I love where our friendship's gone. I love, I mean, you really just been a, a beacon of support for me and I, and encouragement and, and I just, yeah, I'm, I'm entirely grateful to you and your friendship as well. Dito and always here for you. I love you and I will speak to you very soon. Love you too. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.